Welcome back to Deathwatch's Call of Cthulhu campaign, Descent into Darkness. I am Travis and I will be your keeper tonight. Before we plumb the centuried and shadowy levels of anti-diluvian myths, let's introduce our investigators. We'll start with you, John. So I'm John, as I'm returning as uh, James Whitmire, who has spent the last four months trying to consolidate power in New York's underworld. Are you having any luck? Uh, some success. All right, and then we'll go to you, Brandon. I'm Brandon. I'm returning as Wallace Andrews, MD, a doctor who fell in with uh, some other people in Peru for uh, an insane encounter. And uh, since then, I've been back in the United States trying to make sense of it and... Uh, trying to decide how to proceed in plumbing further the depths of the mysterious in the world. Yeah, if I understand it, you took some classes at Miskatonic University and joined the Society for the Exploration of the Unexplained. Correct. All right, and I'll take it over to you, Chris. Hi, I'm Chris. I'm going to be returning as Johan Mueller, an elderly uh, historian who's semi-retired and doesn't believe any of this. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and finally, Justin. And I'm returning once again as Lance Monroe, a uh, museum curator of the occult uh, that has expanded considerably since our time in Peru, and he has spent his time since then delving into the powers that he received due to his brush with uh, an elder god. He is very excited to once again be diving into uh, another chapter of the Elder Gods and their dark powers. Have you used it on anybody in the meantime? No, although (laughs) he is becoming increasingly suspicious of Mr. Rupert Merriweather and his ties to (laughs) some of the more occult things. Well, speaking of Mr. Rupert Merriweather... Our scenario begins with each of you having been invited by him to join a fraternal organization that's newly arrived in Boston. This organization is called the Hermetic Order of the Silver Twilight. Its members are drawn from the upper crust of Boston society, and the order already has a growing reputation for its discussions of philosophy, politics, and other important matters within the congenial atmosphere of brotherhood. So our scene will open up across the the Charles River from Boston and the fashionable Cambridge neighborhood. And uh, James, if I recall correctly, you were one of the characters to arrive early to meetings 
from our last season. So we'll open the scene with you uh, standing outside of a three-floor structure that appears to be newly erected, and it's vaguely Romanesque in its style. The landscaping surrounding the place is immaculate and private with hedgerows and fences blocking sight lines from the street into the grounds. Although it appears anyone at all could wander up to the building if they so desired. Uh, Taken with the rest of the buildings in the neighborhood, the lodge hall stands proud but just shy of the kind of arrogant extravagance that would make it stand out. So um, you're just standing out there in front of this building, which is the address that was included in Mr. Rupert Merriweather's letter. What would you like to do? So was this the, um, trying to think of what it was, the uh, Society for the Exploration of the Unexplained's um, headquarters? No, the SEU is a, uh, it's a, like a college society. It, it It's pretty informal. They only meet in the Orne Library at the Miskatonic University. The Hermetic Order of the Silver Twilight is a fraternity kind of like, uh, you know, Illuminati, right? No, like uh, what, Masons, that sort of stuff. Skull and uh, Bones. Skull and Bones. In this time period, uh, fraternal organizations are pretty big with, I think it's one in five or one in four men belonging to some fraternal organization or another. Of course, they have smaller ones, you know, like uh, if you're a police officer or something like that. Um, but yeah, so this is a totally separate entity from the SEU. What's your uh, education stat? That is, let me find it real quick, 80. Is that right? Mm. Yeah, EDU, right? 80. So yeah. um, you just know that the definition or one of the definitions of hermetic is relating to or characterized by occultism, alchemy, magic, or whatever is obscure and mysterious. Okay. Um, was I able to, or did we know what this building is normally used for? So it... As I mentioned, it's been newly erected, so it looks like it was built just for this purpose. Okay. Um, well, I'm, can I do a, uh, what would it be, like a spot, or what would it be in this? What are you trying to... I just want to see if there's goal? anything anything that uh, seems off to me about uh, the building itself. Or Yeah, go ahead and give me a spot hidden rule. An extreme success. So even though you didn't see anybody when you first arrived, you see uh, like a groundskeeper start working his way up towards the front of the building. Evidently, he was in the back and he's uh, trimming the hedges. But you kind of know a tough when you see one, like a bruiser, right? Uh, You know, uh, he doesn't look like he's doing a very good job at trimming the hedges, but he sort of glances at you and returns back to his work. Okay. So with that, I'll... uh... I'll start making my way to the door. I'll keep an eye on him, though. All right, so you walk up. I want to see if I can get inside. Yeah, sure. Uh, Well, you're expected uh, by the invitation at this time, so it's just a matter of going up to the the heavy oaken double doors, and, and, uh, you know, they have the lion with the bronze ring in its mouth for a knocker. Or are you trying to... Is it locked? No, no. Are you just going to open it up and go inside? Well, yeah, I'm expected. Yeah, so uh, that main door opens up into a foyer uh, with a marble floor, and in the center of the foyer is a a beautiful electric chandelier. And there is a man wearing a white coat and black slacks, and he's got white gloves on, and he looks at you as you arrive, and he's like, may I help you? 
Did we uh, have any information on who we were meeting here? Was it Rupert Merriweather? Right. Okay. Was, uh, yeah, then I'll, I'll pull out the uh, letter of invitation and state that I'm here to speak with Mr. Merriweather. So he glances at it, not really reading, you know, what's on the letter. And he says, may I take your coat and your hat? As I'll relinquish coat and hat. All right. And you see there's another gentleman standing inside. Uh, this is actually the good Dr. Wallace Andrews. So, Brandon, your character arrived at Touch earlier, and you've been looking around at this foyer, at the oaken paneled walls and uh, the fine carpets here and there. And if you want to go ahead and give me an appraise roll. I have failed my appraise. Well, it all looks nice to you. <laughs> but yeah, you're you're interrupted from your, uh, your gazing at everything to you see James Whitmire enter the building. And what did you want to do, James, once you're in there? Uh, yeah, when I see uh, Dr. Andrews, I'll, I'll greet him like an old friend. So, oh, Dr. Andrews, didn't expect to see you here. Not after that, uh, I'll lower my voice, you know, business in Peru. Says, How have you been? Um, I'll extend my hand and, uh, and I'll say, oh, it's good to see you again as well, Mr. Whitmire. Uh, been well. How have you been? Good, good. Uh, usually, I'm I'm the first to arrive, but uh, looks like you've been here for a little bit. Do you know Do you know what we're doing? Have you met met Mister uh, Merriweather yet? Um, I haven't seen him yet, have I? No, you've just once you've been let in, and if they took your coat and hat, then you've just been waiting there. Uh, I haven't seen him yet. I've only just arrived. Okay. As, uh, can I can I attempt an appraise on these items as well? Yeah, go for it. Uh, I don't know if I'll do much better than him. Nope. Well, I mean, you can clearly, both of you could clearly tell that the construction and everything they use to build this place uh, oozes wealth, but in a subdued way. Um, so, Lance, how are you likely to approach that building? Are you going to walk in as James did or or use the knocker? Oh, I'd, I'd probably just walk in. All right. So, yeah, as you guys are reintroducing yourself, uh, you see Lance Monroe walk into the building. Do they hide? I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll stop talking and just stare. Well, yeah. I'll, so, I'll go over and extend my hand right away. Gentlemen, good doctor. It's good to see you again. How have you been since our uh, our time and our adventures in Peru? Have you recovered sufficiently? Uh, yes. I've been doing all right. And Mr. Whitmire, I'm sure that you've been uh, doing your normal skirting of the, the law, as always. It's good to see you out and not incarcerated. So, once again, it should be a pleasure to work with you. I assume that you're both here for this uh, reaching out that they did to Mr. Merriweather. Uh, yes, uh, I received an invitation from him. Yeah, I I got one, too. It was... Uh, uh, if I remember correctly, Travis, didn't some of my uh, loot that I was trying to haul back from Peru get uh, either lost or seized? No, I don't think so. I okay. um, I know behind the scenes uh, there was, I believe Stanton was trying to get the mask from you, but you you defeated him. Okay. And yes, you were able uh, to get it out of country. I believe what happened was it might have been... Uh, like temporarily seized and searched. Right. Okay. But they couldn't find it. You were able to sneak it through. 
Yeah, was, uh, I'm, I'm suspicious of Lance though for that. Oh, I figured <laughs> he was he was tr- the one trying to get get that mask away from me. So yeah, is that so? And are you are you obviously sort of playing that out? I kind of feel like with you mentioning that you stop in mid sentence at his arrival, that it might be kind of obvious. Yeah, I'm I'm uh, a little wary of working with him again. All right, so um, finally to arrive is Johan, and uh, do you just push into the foyer as well? Uh, he'd try to, depending on how heavy the door <laughs> is, he might not be able to. Yeah, you can, but uh, you come in right behind these guys. They're, they're okay. kind of jammed up at the uh, front of the door there. Yeah, so I guess uh, I'll kind of uh, put my shoulder to it <laughs> to get the door open. You know, not uh, more relying on like my body weight to kind of push it in. <laughs> yeah. So even though you can see that it's it's pretty heavy, that um, it's well set in the frame and it swings easily. Okay. Outward. All right. So yeah, then uh, for the rest of you guys, you see a person you haven't met before. Do you want me to describe them? Or yeah, go ahead. Uh, aged and stooped. Uh, somewhere in the uh, in the age range of like 70 to 80 years old. Uh, he's thin, dressed in a cheap suit that you'd probably see like a, a teacher or someone of lower income wearing, but still wanting to maintain some sort of formality in their workplace. Uh, Gold rimmed spectacles and a thin pencil mustache uh, set atop his lip. The spectacles don't sit on his lip. Those sit on his nose. <laughs> uh, so yeah, like... Uh, Slight would be a slight and old would be the main characteristics of Johan. So if I see him struggling at all with the door, I, I will go and and help him out. But if I don't, like if he doesn't have any issues, then uh, when he comes in, my uh, my uh, being closed off will change a little bit, and uh, big smile and a greeting that uh, you must be here for Mister Merriweather too. Oh, yes, indeed. Uh, uh, I'll kind of squint at uh, Whitmire. Uh, I'll shake or put my hand out and say, James Whitmire. Ah, I'll uh, transfer the cane to my uh, left hand and shake Whitmire's hand. I'm Johan uh, Mueller. Good to uh, good to meet you, sir. <laughs> As, uh, this is uh, like, come this way, come this way, and I'll uh, gesture to dr andrews and say this is dr andrews uh, herr andrews pleasure to meet I'll you i'll extend my hand a pleasure and then uh not uh stepping out of the or not um showing any unkindness i'll introduce you were a uh teacher is that right Monroe? Yeah. oh Monroe. no it's, I'm, I'm a museum You're, curator okay is, uh, then do you have any type of title at all no Okay, uh, I'll you know, introduce uh, Lance Monroe. Uh, Herr Monroe, I'll extend my hand. It's a pleasure to meet you, Mr. Muller. And after uh, shaking Mr. Whitmire's hand, you may want to count to ensure that all of your fingers are still attached to your uh, hand. <laughs> I kid, oh I kid, I kid. He's, he's a good man, and he served us well when we were in Peru. Uh, are you, sir, from the uh, this hermetic order that we have been reached out by, or are you uh, joining us via Mr.... Merriweather. Uh, nein, I'm uh, here on Mr. Merriweather's invitation. Ah, uh, uh, he's a good man, good man. He is, he is indeed. 
I'll look at my hand to make sure that all my fingers are there, <laughs> <laughs> and then wipe it off uh, on my uh, my suit vest. Okay, so the serving man, uh, done with putting all the coats in such a way, comes out and uh, he says, "Let me lead you to the reception room where you can wait in more comfort. Uh, is there a drink or or perhaps a morsel I could get for you?" Yes, good sir. I'll definitely take a gin and tonic if you don't mind. I'll ask him if he has any tea. Yeah, he can definitely uh, get you whatever it is you desire, and including the alcoholic sandwiches. beverage. Fingers. I, <laughs> I, mean, I will uh, follow uh, Mr. Wittmeyer's example and have some tea as well. In an awkward show, I'll like fish out a couple of pennies and put them on like his tray. Oh, okay. Not really understanding that he doesn't really need to be tipped. <laughs> <laughs> well, he gives a... You know, he inclines his head and thanks for the the tip. So the reception room you're you're led into continues the trend of of wealth and all the materials it's comprised of. Uh, however, there are plush chairs and small tables for you guys to get seated in while you wait. And then you you know you wait all the all the duration until your drinks or the morsels that you ordered arrive and. In the case, in that case, it's more than just the one serving man that comes back. It's like there's one for each item that was ordered, you know. And as I described, they're all wearing the white gloves and and uh, they make very little noise when they deliver their items and and make themselves scarce as soon as their task is complete. Is there anything in this room, or just the seating and tables? Yeah, it's just the seating and tables. Okay. Um, I mean, there are like pictures and and. And things on the walls, but they're, they're nothing they're out just, of the ordinary, though. Right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I think. Like, you uh, know, oh, sorry. Go for it. Well, actually, I can get the appraise rolls from. Uh, I believe Johan and Lance haven't made one. Uh, um. So while I'm doing that, uh, Johan will kind of set himself gently on the, kind of like the edge of a couch or a chair and begin rummaging around in his vest for his pipe. Oh, okay. And, uh, a light. Accidentally rolled twice, but both were failures, so. <laughs> As we sit down, I'll I'll say to both uh, James and Wallace, I was disappointed that you have not yet taken me up on my offer to give you a personalized tour of my museum. Some of the artifacts that we brought back from Peru are uh, very, very good at drawing a crowd. And the work that I've done to enhance the overall setting is has been, you know, very very uh effective was, uh, i've been a little busy but uh i might be able to make time for that yeah i was definitely interested in seeing that and i'll try to make time for it as well i've been quite busy with university courses ah becoming an educated man yet again so what kinds of courses outside of your doctoring are you uh studying these days well if you'd believe it uh i can't remember <laughs> 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 you you do not seem to be one of advanced years, uh, Mister uh, Andrews. You should not be forgetting so easily. Uh, yeah, what course <laughs> was it specifically? That's a good question. I don't remember. Like I, either. I can't find where I had written it down. Was it um, in your journal? Well, it was the college occult stuff, or uh, yeah, what, it was what something to do with occult stuff. I can't. <laughs> what was the name of this but building? It had, it had a uh, a name. I can't. So it's uh, John. It's the Lodge Hall 
for the Hermetic Order of the Silver Toilet. While, while he's trying to remember um, what exactly it was he studied, uh, you see the familiar frame of Rupert Merriweather, along with the tall man in his 30s, enter the reception room there. Uh, the man he's with, the one in his 30s, has an aquiline nose and long red hair, and they both walk with the aid of canes, although the younger man appears only to have his as a fashion statement. The younger man has pale, watery eyes, and there's like a cruel or arrogant cast to them, and it's set in a reddened and pockmarked face, not entirely uncommon to see on folk due to the, you know, the ravages of disease in their childhood or something like that. While Mr. Merriweather himself looks weary and thin, as though stepping out of the sick room for the first time after a long illness. Although, as soon as he sees you guys, his customary grandfatherly smile, you know, lights up his face. Ah, uh, Mr. Andrews, Whitmire, Mueller, and Monroe, good to see you. Thank you for accepting my invitation. How are you all doing? Very good, very good, sir. It is, uh, I cannot express my most magnanimously humble uh, gratitude in your endeavor to include me in this investigation. Oh, and shake his hand as well and thank him for the opportunity. And Mueller, it's been a while. It has a hair Meriwether. Uh, it is good to see you again. I have been overworked and had to take a sabbatical. <laughs> oh, yes, I know it well. Age doesn't help at all, as I'm sure you understand. It does not. What cruel God would have it where we just get more tired the, the less we do? <laughs> and Whitmire, how have you been? I've been doing, I'll sit there and think, uh, pretty well. As, uh, not as well as I would have expected, but how have you been? Uh, as well as can be expected. Oh, where's my head? Uh, this is Mr. John Scott next to me. He is the noble philosopher here at the Boston Lodge. And there's kind of a wry twist uh, to his mouth when he says noble philosopher. You know, um, him and I have been actually debating a moral quandary for the last half hour. And uh, I wonder, maybe you guys can solve it for us. Would you care to? Of course. Let's hear it. All right. Late one night, you are up due to a bout of restlessness. During a walk to cure your insomnia, you overhear two men arguing. You get to a place where you can see them, and they are not aware of you. The argument culminates in one man stabbing the other to death. Just as the murderer flees in the night, moonlight reveals his face. It is none other than a leader in your village, and the patriarch of a large upstanding family. A man you know to be, a good citizen, and even a friend at times. The next day... The murder is the talk of the village, and the local constable has claimed to have apprehended the perpetrator. The arrested man turns out to be a local drunk and nuisance, a man who once squatted in your barn, breaking the gate to your property, after which some of your livestock escaped and a calf was killed by wolves. The man has caused similar harm to others in the village. The victim of the murder proves to be a miner and an out-of-towner who bears the brand of thief on his forehead although the constable recovered no stolen possessions on his corpse. The constable produces a bloody knife as the murder weapon, which all but seals the fate of the drunkard. Until now, you've been silent. Do you come forward and reveal the truth, or let an innocent man go to the gallows? What do you think, Mr. Whitmire? 
Well, and I guess it would be, in my opinion, it would have to be based on what uh, what benefit would I get by staying silent? Well, is, that- is there something that uh, I mean, have, has anybody brought this to the um, the person that you know to have done this? Has anybody? Sorry. Well, has so anybody, I mean, it sounds like they know who did it, right? Uh, no, they apprehended um, a drunkard, right? Yeah, they, you but, saw you saw like a upstanding citizen actually. Oh, do it. okay, gotcha. Well, I mean, yeah, it still goes back to the same thing: is how is it going to benefit me if I uh, decide to turn the right person in or don't say anything for letting the wrong person or the innocent person take the fall? Well, Mr. Andrews, perhaps you can throw in on that. Well, certainly this is a mystery, and we must do what we can to find out why the leader of the village slew this man before we decide what to do. He might very well have had a good reason, and the consequences of uh, testifying against him might outweigh the consequences of a, a man facing the punishment. And what do you think, Mr. Mueller? Hmm. Is this a uh, man who was to take the blame was a uh, a nuisance, or was the man who was murdered a nuisance? I am sorry, my age, Herr Mary was a. Oh no, that's quite all right. I understand. Uh, he was a nuisance. Broke your fence and allowed a calf to be killed by wolves. The one who's blamed? Yes. Oh, then put him to death. <laughs> When you get to be my age, uh, the death penalty, it comes easier and easier. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and Mr. Monroe. So I'll stand up and I'll kind of unbutton my coat and put my hands on my hips in a pontificating gesture and state, well, sir, uh, if you're speaking strictly from a moral standpoint, then the obvious uh, thing to do would be to out the man that had murdered the young waif that had wandered into the village and let the drunkard face his own charges on his own uh, merits. Uh, While he may have done wrong, he most certainly should only pay for the crimes that he had committed rather than the crimes that he did not. That being said, though, when you're speaking of morality and ethics, there is some gray room on whether or not to actually follow the best course of action. Has any of the what the others said helped you arrive to a decision, Mr. Whitmire? Well, and the person that's being blamed for this is already a nuisance. He's already cost you a calf. And the person that died was branded as a thief. I mean, it's plus the fact that uh, there could be something in it if the upstanding uh, citizen or the leader of the town knows that I I know or that you know that uh, they're convicting the wrong person. So I would say, say nothing to them, but use it to your advantage. Like say nothing to the law, I guess. Right. So then John Scott speaks. So you see, Mr. Merriweather, they take my side on the issue, except for Mr. Monroe, of course. I think Andrew's, sorry, what did you come down on? Uh, Well, I had said that I would um, need to hear from the leader of the village why he had killed the man. Because his stature and his history as an upstanding citizen at least earned him the benefit of the doubt. And he might have a good reason. Oh, this is Scott speaking. Well, I suppose uh, 
nested in the moral quandary is the idea that you've now come to the decision point. You must either give up the the upstanding citizen or let the drunkard go to the gallows. So which do you choose? Uh, putting me on the spot, I, uh, in this case, would choose to keep my mouth shut and let justice play out as as it as it is. Ah, oh, so it seems we are tied up after all. And then Merriweather says, uh, well, enough of that. Thank you all for coming. I have uh, been a member of this order for a few months now, and they are looking for a few good men. So I thought about you gentlemen. Um, if you'd like, we could have a tour of the lodge hall if you'll just follow me. Hey, so he lead. Sorry, go ahead. Keeper, can I do some sort of a check to determine if I can see if Merriweather or Mr. Scott are disappointed by any of our reactions? Yeah, actually, that's a that's a good idea. Why don't you all throw out a psychology rule? You can have a, a bonus one on that one, Brandon. Yes. I'm sorry, which rule did you want? Psychology. So it looks like just the ever, uh, what's the word? Oh, it doesn't matter. It was Monroe. You got the success there. So while the rest of you can't really detect what the two men think of it one way or the other, Monroe, you're able to detect that Scott is disappointed when he was listening to uh, the investigators that came down on um, just letting the innocent man go to the gallows. Or no, he was disappointed on the ones that wanted to give up the upstanding citizen, while Mr. Merriweather was disappointed in the, those who would let the innocent man go to the gallows. If that makes sense, that's what you're able to uh, pick up out of that. And okay. don't forget your check marks, guys, When yeah, for those that had had successes. It doesn't look like... I've never had a success. <laughs> yeah, no. I've got mine from my spot hidden. <laughs> this entire but... sec- second season, I haven't had one success. <laughs> <laughs> but noting that Mr. Merriweather seemed to appreciate the fact that you know, we didn't want an innocent man to die for it. I'll, uh, that'll increase my uh, considerations of him. Okay, so Mr. Merriweather and Scott lead you out of the reception room through the foyer into a nice lounge where there are several other men seated. Okay, so this lounge is, it looks like an informal meeting place. It's like a larger version of the reception room where you have overstuffed chairs and small tables bearing electric lamps, which are the only sources of light in the room. And there are four servants posted around just waiting to take orders from the various men you see gathered there. So uh, Mr. Scott is saying, well, this here is our lounge. Uh, This is where most of us meet. Um, You'll see men here throughout the day. They come here on their lunch breaks after work. They need time away from domestic responsibilities here to discuss topics with, with other members. Uh, let's make some introductions. So he walks you up, see those three men seated around the table. Um, so he says, here you have uh, Philip Valerio. And he points out that man. Um, Valerio has like a baby face. Uh, he's holding his drink with a cocktail napkin like between his fingers and where it touches the glass. Sorry, and- what was his first name again? Philip? Philip. Yeah, so he's Valerio, yeah. You guys have the map, right? You're on the map? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and so he's bespectacled. He's got 
brillantined hair. So that means they put, you know, the like the grease in it and uh, a baby face. He's dressed crisply in a press shirt, trousers and suspenders. And uh, next to him is a man with graying hair that would be Wayne Nichols. Um, and he has a thick eyebrows, a long pointed nose and ruddy cheeks. But he looks inexplicably relieved upon your arrival for whatever reason. And also there's uh, James Clark. He's tall and dark and smoking a cigarette. And that smoke filters up around his prominent cheekbones and thick black hair. So, yeah, uh, Scott says, uh, this is Mr. Valerio. He's an accountant. And if a dragon were to burst from the bowels of the earth, he would bore it to death, wondering if it had put its hoard into a tax haven. And uh, for Philip's part, he's like, ah, fresh meat. Uh, this here, the gray-haired man, is Mr. Wayne Nichols, Detective Wayne Nichols, actually, an investigator of homicide, ghastly. Uh, you guys can make a psychology role at this point. So used to double-clicking things. Right. How do we do this time? Muller and James. So, yeah, you guys, uh, as I said to all of you, he looked relieved uh, at your arrival. And that's what you guys pick out more of. It's like he's he's kind of been waiting for you. This detective's been sitting here waiting for you guys to arrive. And then he... Um, Scott points to the smoker and he says, and this is Mr. James Clark, a successful attorney at law. He is the Clark in Antonello and Clark. I do hope his inclusion in our fraternity does not give us a bad name. And uh, the man over yonder reading the paper, uh, you guys see that man up in the corner of the room, with the rude manners is Mr. Carl Stanford, a businessman, and his man Max Reed. Uh, Carl just gives kind of like a, a faux grumpy wave as though he cannot be bothered. Although a smile lights his pudgy face. Uh, Max Reed, his man, gives a nod like Boba Fett gave to Princess Leia when she was disguised as a bounty hunter during the Jabba's palace sequence to each of you. And I'll take a uh, spot hidden roll from everybody. It would be, have to be a hard spot hidden. Oh, I couldn't even finish a, or get a success on a regular. So I don't see any hard success. Um. Uh, I just wanted to ask real quick, should I be seeing these people's names on the map? Because I'm not. Do you see their tokens? Yeah. But yeah. Names. But no Does names. anybody else see names? No, no I only see my name. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let me go through it then. Because I thought that would show the nameplate to everybody. Okay. So that's Mr. Philip Valerio, baby face with the brillantined hair. That's Detective Wayne Nichols. This is the lawyer, James Clark, Carl Stanford, and Max Reed. Okay. I'll figure out how to get those nameplates up there next time. Okay, where were we? All right, yeah, so he's uh, he just introduces you to the people that are there. He leads you into another room, which is like a big dining hall. And he's get, giving you the rundown of, of everything that they have here. You know, it's kind of, you, you get the sense over time that he's, basically just showing off the wealth of the place um, as though he's trying to attract your interest and in possibly joining the order, although not in uh, not in too needy of a way, if that makes sense. Well, I will inquire since uh, I'm already a member of the Society for the Exploration of Unexplained is what uh, how one would gain membership into the uh, hermetic um, what was it? Hermetic uh, Order of the Silver Twilight. Is uh, that right? Yeah. So okay. this is Mr. Scott speaking. Well, it's really 
uh, quite simple, Mr. Wittenmire. Uh, we just look for men of, of high standing. Uh, we filter for that by requiring a quite sizable set of dues each year. Which would be? $500 are the yearly dues. And of course, uh, you need a recommendation from a fellow member, as Mr. Rupert Merriweather has given you. I know it sounds pretty steep, but I think you would find it quite worth it. So, uh, I'll tell him I'll ta- uh, that uh, I'll take you up on that. And what about the rest of you? Are you interested? Um, yes, I am. I, I would uh, love membership in this organization. Uh, add a game real quick. I, I, I don't want to give off the impression that joining the order is a prerequisite for continuing the scenario. It's uh, no, these are the people. I feel that these are these are the exact type of people that I need to have contact with to increase my underworld's holding, as it could be quite lucrative. Yeah, I have my own reasons as well. And Mr. Mueller, Mueller and Monroe, are you interested? Well, I would first like to see what happens with our investigation, but on its surface, I really see no purpose in me joining any society like this. The uh, unfortunate. So, the uh, Society for the Exploration of the Unexplained seems to be more of the kind of gathering of people that I, I would typically find myself joining. I see. And you, Mr. Mueller. Yeah, feel free to explore around as you guys to the places that are open to you. Ah, yes, Scott. I would have loved to have joined you, but unfortunately I'm just a simple pensioner in the twilight of my years. I don't really want to uh, sell what little I own just to uh, sit around and drink and smoke. I can do that for free at the park. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Indeed, Mr. Mueller, but there's more to it than that. I assure you that the men you will meet here can connect you in ways that you may not have experienced in the past. Perhaps I will uh, give you a tentative, I'll think about it, Er Scott. I understand. And I mean no disrespect or rudeness to you <laughs> at all. You have a fine, fine establishment here, and you appear to be fine people. <laughs> uh, diplomatic answer if I ever have heard one. Uh, thank you, Er Monroe. Well... Um, he kind of had a quizzical look when you, when you were talking about the investigation, Monroe, like he didn't know what that was about. Um, but he, uh, Mr. Scott says, well, I have, uh, duties to attend to, so I will leave you in Mr. Merriweather's care. Uh, have a nice day. It was a pleasure to meet all of you. Ah, the pleasure was mine, uh, Scott. Uh, please have a pleasant day. Yeah, I'll, uh, shake his hand if he offers it or offer my own. Yeah, he takes your hand. It's a warm and, and strong grip, despite his cr- the cruel cast to his eyes. No, I'll, I'll wish him a good day. Uh, well, gentlemen, you know, I suppose uh, we should get down to why you're uh, primarily here. And that is Detective Wayne Nichols would like to speak to you. He's heard of the SEU, you see. Uh, perhaps we should retire to the bar? Uh, most definitely. Sounds good. So, yeah, uh, you all trot over to the bar, which is just an adjoining room to the lounge. And uh, Detective Wayne Nichols, you know, he shakes all of your hand. And uh, he he has a warm look about him, but you do see there's a sadness around his, around his eyes uh, in the uh, 
in the lines that are appearing in his face as he reaches the tail end of middle age. And he says, you know, I've heard, I've heard of the SCU before. That's um, actually why Mr. Merriweather uh, connected me with you. You know, I was looking for help in a matter that requires the utmost discretion, and you were the first names that he spoke. Um, but first, you know, before I ask help with this problem that I have, I wonder if I might get your guarantee of discretion. Of course. You know, I promise it's nothing illegal, uh, but perhaps you'll see the need for silence once all is revealed. I would prefer that uh, business dealings with the uh, Order of Unexplained or Society for the Exploration of the Unexplained stay discreet. It sounds like one is worried about your reputation. (laughs) Uh, In a way, in a way, yes. Well, if we're... you're all agreed to it then. I suppose there's nothing for it but to get right into it. Um, so, there was a man who lived with his nephew in an apartment at 37 Stillman Street. And they both go to sleep on the night of October 31st, 1920. Evidently, this man peruses a tattered almanac that goes on the bedside table next to several empty glasses, which are also arranged on the dresser or the table. There are other almanacs stuffed in drawers. They're lining the rest of the open space on the table. They're underneath the bed. And beneath his pillow is a loaded Colt service revolver. So on the morning of November the 1st, around 9 a.m., a neighbor contacts the police about a disturbance at the same address, 37 Steelman Street. When a police officer arrives at around 9.15, he hears screaming or a kind of long wailing coming from inside this apartment. The officer attempts to knock at the door, but when he gets no response apart from the wailing, he forces entry, breaking the door partially off its hinges, and rushes to the bedroom where the wailing is coming from. There he finds the nephew cradling the severed head of his uncle in his lap. The beat cop, uh, um, Nathan Noya, he uh, cuffs the nephew, puts him in the back of the police cruiser, And then he notifies the station of a probable homicide, at which point I and my partner arrive at the scene around 9.37 a.m. My partner splits off to try and interview the kid who has stopped screaming while I go inside. Now, before I tell you any more about what I found in there, let me describe this kid to you. He's 16 years of age, brown hair, brown eyes. He stands 5'7". He's like, maybe about 114 pounds soaking wet. At no point during my partner's interview with him or interview at the station or the doctor's efforts at Roxbury Sanatorium, where he now resides, does this kid give us so much as a peep about what happened in the apartment. Turns out he was born a bit touched. He could not or would not speak. We're not sure which. Some three months after the incident, he signs a typed confession admitting to the murder of his uncle. I was on leave when this happened, vacationing in California with my family. Anyways, in the room where the murder occurred, this kid's uncle lies dismembered. Perhaps it would be better if you looked at the coroner's report. And he pulls out a typed sheet of paper there. Let me share it with you guys. Okay. Did you get that, the coroner's report? Yeah. Yep. 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 All right. So it reads, autopsy report, case number BPD-11029. Dash 43M. Decedent, Robert A. Dooley. Autopsy authorized by Dr. Dikla. 
identified by relative of decedent, rigor, absent, age, 39, sex, male, length, 72 inches, weight, 208 pounds, eyes brown, hair brown, clothing, deceased was in a state of semi-dress, white shirt and white boxer shorts, both stained with the decedent's blood, black calf-high socks also stained with the decedent's blood. External examination. Middle-aged, slightly overweight male in relatively good health prior to his death. The victim suffered from total dismemberment at every articulating joint in the body, including each finger segment. This dismemberment was not done in a surgical manner, but by blunt force, as evidenced by the torn and lacerated skin surrounding the joints. Spinal column was mainly intact, except for a severing of bones and tissue around the neck, when the victim's head was removed. History. Decedent killed by total dismemberment. Cause of death was blood loss during the dismemberment process, likely upon the removal of an arm from the shoulder joint or the separation of a leg from the pelvis. Pathology. It is this doctor's opinion that the medical evidence in the case suggests that an extremely strong human subdued the decedent and then began the dismemberment process while the victim was dazed or in a state of shock. The victim then suffered a period of unconsciousness, followed by death from loss of blood incompatible with sustaining human life. Police reports describe the victim having been arranged in a ceremonial manner upon completion of the dismemberment process. The evidence suggests this could not have been an animal attack. The killer may have used a tool to aid him, however no blades were used on the victim. The doctor would like to note he has never seen anything like this in his 20 years of practice. So yeah, after a moment... Um, of letting you guys read that over as you pass it amongst each other. Uh, Detective Wayne Nichols asks, you know, I'm curious to know what, just based off this preliminary sort of description I've gained, what, what conclusions you've drawn thus far. Any can thoughts? I, can I trouble you to share that again? Uh, yeah, sure. I'm not able to click on it in the sidebar. Won't bring it up. A good investigator, it mentions in the report that the body was arranged in a ceremonial manner. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. One sec, let me share this with Brandon. Can you interact with it now? Um, no. Huh. Can the rest of you? Yeah. No, once I closed it, it wouldn't reopen. So back on the screen for you? No. Hmm. But well, I, yeah, I can reopen it. Yeah. That's okay. Maybe it's we just can, a latency issue. Yeah, I can look at it later. Okay. So yeah, anyhow, he uh, uh, Monroe, you asked that, or you were curious about how the body was arranged. Yes. Yeah, you see the the various pieces and parts of the victim were arranged in a spread-eagle pattern. I was reminded of a macabre Vitruvian man, except the severed head had rolled to the base of the dresser, presumably when the nephew was arrested. You know, there's another detail that didn't make it into the autopsy. The victim's eyes were removed as well, and I believe the victim did this himself. There were flesh and blood underneath his fingernails. And finally, uh, a strange symbol was painted on the bedroom walls, a, a sort of stylized eye symbol. Hmm. Well, there's, there's more to tell. Uh, you know, the room, despite what I've described, was curiously free of blood splatter. Uh, not to say there was no blood splatter, but there was less than you might expect. There were or droplets as the victim removed his eyes, I think, and wandered to the wall where the largest accumulation of blood splatter occurred. So... What I'm kind of curious is if you guys notice the sort of problem I'm describing here. A nephew signs a typed confession. 
there are details missing from the official coroner's report. And I'm it sounds like case. somebody's yeah trying to hide something I mean, with your description of the nephew and the the lack of a, a bladed weapon um, having been found and just the description of it. It sounds like this man was torn apart, but the nephew shouldn't have been able to do that. I we've seen or I've seen some strange things even recently, but I don't see a kid tearing apart another person like that neither do i i never liked him for the perpetrator but i assure you that as soon as roxbury sanatoriums and the doctor the doctors there show he's fit for trial he'll spend life in prison if not you know ride the electric chair for it there's a little bit more to tell well before yeah lance what rituals do you know of or have you heard of that would require something like this? So is this an occult role? Yeah, let's get an occult role from the occult people. So yeah, you guys both uh, understand, you know, um, like death cult behavior or death rituals. You know, that, uh, this could indicate, you know, somebody trying to gain power by this sort of stylized killing. Mm-hmm. And the eye symbol... Strikes a chord with you, Mr. Mueller, as you are familiar with an eye symbol in the past. But uh, the the detective continues. So the house at 37 Stillman was filled with old papers and other knickknacks and not in a tidy manner, as, I, as I've described. So this bedside table was loaded with cups and there were many and varying almanacs. Unlike the rest of the house, the bedroom clutter was arranged neatly. Uh, with the cups and ordered rows, like there was still a ton of it, like you'd see in the rest of the house, but th- there was this contrast where it, it almost looked like a separate person had taken these things and and ordered them just so. Uh, anyhow, so this is a this is a real odd one. Most of the victim's blood, besides those few droplets I described, and I'm talking a few pints here, were placed in the empty cups, or so I think having a colleague of mine match the victim's blood group with the blood found in the cups. When I left the scene, I took one of the sports almanac, the one that was open on the bedside table, I put it in my jacket pocket, and I quite forgot about it. And then some months later, you know, I, it had fallen off out of my coat into my our service car. I saw it picking there. I picked it up, and I opened it, you know, not really thinking anything, and this is what was inside. So he passes that off to you. My good detective, did you do fingerprinting analysis on the glassware? We did. We didn't get any other prints uh, in Mr. Dooley's room except Mr. Dooley's prints. Not even the young man that was staying with him? Evidently, he doesn't go into his uncle's room. Uh, well, anyhow, yeah, take a look. He, he hands you that. Can you guys see the almanac? Yeah, as I had yeah. to go open it from the uh, handouts. Yeah. Okay. And I had to do the same. That it did open for me too. So. Okay. Um, so you can see it's this one phrase in Latin over and over. The whole book is like that. Just one phrase in Latin. I had it translated. It's roughly says this: "The church was to be my body, but now it is gone, and I am blind, forever in the dark. No sense, but the sense of time. God help me." Hmm. All right. So. With all of it told, you get the nephew, we have a type confession, the captain forbids me from pursuing the case any further, 
And the reason I've come to you is because I don't believe the nephew is responsible for the murder. And according to the victim's journal, which we found, and it was entered into evidence, he ran afoul of a group of men he described as college boys. From what I recall, he tried to warn them away from fooling around in an old house across from his shop that folks say is haunted. When they ignored his warnings, he called the police. From that point on, they threatened him whenever they were in his neighborhood. One morning, he found a severed pig's head on the doorstep of his shop, if you can believe it. You know, I considered doing this in my spare time, but I found that certain evidence had been lost. Uh, Mr. Dooley's journal, for one, the blood samples, photographs taken at the scene, at the scene, and anything else not on my person that day uh, that this happened, and, such as the autopsy report and the almanac. Uh, you know, as you as you can see, should you decide to investigate this matter on my behalf, which is what I'm asking, discretion is a must. You know, I don't really have any solid leads at this point, besides what I've already told you which is why I wanted the fresh minds on the case. So what do you, what do you guys think? What are your thoughts on it? Well, um, I would be more than happy to help you with this. And, uh, I have, has, do you remember anybody looking into any religious aspects of this or do you have information on who those kids were? No, you know, there's, you've got quite a few colleges here. You have the university of Boston, you have Harvard, you have MIT, you know, uh, saying a college boy, especially around the time of year, doesn't narrow it down as much as I'd like. Um, but, you know, once that signed confession happened, I just, I couldn't ask anything in a, an official capacity. You know, the the argument I got with my captain about it was quite heated, and he threatened to put me on administrative leave. Hmm. I, what is I, the building hmm. in this uh, almanac? Oh, the, yeah. oh, on the almanac? Yeah, have you looked into that at all? Uh, you know, that's a good question. I hadn't really looked into what building that's showing. Uh, War Information Edition, the world. Because right, aren't we in aren't we in 1920 right now? 1921. It's about 20, yeah. Late so, June. But he apparently had many different almanacs that he read regularly. Right. I you know I I guess maybe it was just his thing. Or, or did those disappear as well? No, all the almanacs that I saw there, I presume, should still be as there? a state. You know, okay. I think um, it was supposed to be passed on to somebody, but any inheritance type stuff is on hold until the investigation comes to a conclusion. And do you happen to know where his estate is being held? Uh, well, it's um, everything as is left as is it was a crime scene so you know we taped it off that day i went back a few times but it was just to see if something would you know catch me different and um as i understand it mr dooley left it in his uh, last will to go to a friend of his or or something to that effect but because of the nature of the crime and you know any transfer of titles that's just put on hold so I, I think his estate was primarily his physical properties, that being his house and his uh, cigar shop. Okay. Do you know who, who the beneficiary of that was? I didn't have access to that information at the time. Okay. You know, I um, not that you could do anything about this, but I was over at my partner's you know house the other day, and I, I swore I saw Mr. Dooley's journal just on top of his icebox. And, uh, I mean... Nothing we could do for it. You would have to break into his place. And, you know, I'm not asking you to do anything illegal. That's for sure. 
but there is a connection, you know, to, to, uh, to that church. I think he meant when I was reading through his journal, he mentioned it, you know, the, that old church, um, what's the address? I forget it now, but there's an old church, uh, abandoned, destroyed church that Mr. Dooley mentioned in his journal. And, uh, he said that the eye symbol that, he said that there was an eye symbol painted on his front window along with that severed pig's head. You know, I thought there was a connection there, but as I said, I haven't really looked into it myself. And I'm afraid that's really all I can tell you at this stage. I mean, anything else you guys would have to find on your own. That is if you agree to, to take this up. Well, as for me, like I said, I'd be more than happy to, to do you this favor. Uh, as would I. My good detective, first of all, I'd like to commend you for your exhaustive attempt to find the actual perpetrator of this heinous crime, and I would love to assist you in this manner, and I assure you that discretion is my nom de plume. Of course, detective, uh, whoever committed such a heinous act should be brought to justice, and at the very least, if it wasn't the nephew himself, he most likely did not work alone if the the horror that you described was uh, I, I do not believe that he could have done it alone it too too organized no i mm. think you know just saying he's five seven 116 pounds you know that gives you the idea that he wouldn't be able to but if you guys are able to visit him at roxbury sanitarium i mean just the sight of him alone will convince you that definitely he wouldn't have been able to do it alone mm-hmm. but um him a visit i uh i don't have much in the way to offer you except you know like a favor to owe you all or perhaps if you're thinking of joining the order i could pay your first year's dues at least um but i, I appreciate think, you guys uh, taking that up i think a favor for a favor is more than fair um where wh- where is roxbury sanitarium is it in boston it's just outside of boston about an hour drive to the south and then i can't bring up the coroner's report, but did I hear something about it seemed like the head had been ripped off of the body? Right. Yeah, that's yeah, pretty much every it's, so everywhere there's a joint, like an articulating joint, uh, was torn off, even the fingers. Yeah. So I mean I should just know that you know, being a doctor that, you know, even a grown man wouldn't be able to just tear a, a head off a body, right? Yeah, cutting up them bodies is hard work, I'll tell you. I mean, so that, that from what I've heard. It interesting to me from just from that angle alone. So uh, I'd be happy to investigate this detective, and uh, there's no need for you to pay my dues. I'll do this as a favor to you and my own curiosity. Well, yeah, I appreciate that from you all. Uh, at least uh, do me another favor of, of having dinner with my wife and I tomorrow evening as a way of repayment, but mostly uh, to keep her happy. We've, we've recently moved to Boston just a year ago and she hasn't made many connections here and she always loves to play the host. Uh, I would be delighted to join you and your wife for dinner. Uh, An evening of stimulating conversation is exactly what I need these days. (laughs) I have not had a home cooked meal since my brother left for England. So I, We'll enjoy it. Well, thank you, gentlemen. Um, uh, uh, he gives you the details in which and how you can contact him, like where he lives and also where you can fax him. Uh, he says maybe not to fax 
things relating to the investigation or, you know, like directly, but to set up meetings if there's some information you want to tell him uh, because the facts he gives you goes directly to the p- police station. And I assume that he, he also gave us some of the details, like uh, the location of the guy's shop, the church, and his apartment. Right, yeah. Okay. And what about your partner's address? Oh, yeah, I can I can um, scroll that down for you here. And he writes that down as well. Okay. One thing I'm Is there about. a fax machine here that we could oh, send the information to? You could to? send faxes here, yeah. As, uh, seeing as how I'm, I'm going to be a member as soon as I write this check. Okay. Yeah. He, um, he thanks you all again and, uh, professes that he must, you know, return home to his wife as they had part of the day planned together. And, uh, he shakes all your hands and departs, which leaves you there with just Mr. Rupert Merriweather, who was silently watching the whole exchange. And he says, Hmm, uh, a murder case. Quite fascinating. I wish that I could join all of you. Uh, Unfortunately, I'm going to be traveling abroad, but I would like to offer the services of my chauffeur, should you need him, uh, Mr. McCracken. Um, Here's his contact information. If you need, you know, little odds and ends delivered or items picked up or a ride here and there, he is quite capable in that regard. And my good Mr. Merriweather, uh, I know that you have certain resources in finding occult things and i was wondering if there are any resources you might be able to lend us in tracking down this eye symbol that was paramount in the case um yeah i can do a little bit of looking into it before i depart i will I appreciate send you, that good sir send you what i find early in the morning and uh he says well for those of you that are joining i can collect your dues now and uh I believe later this evening they'll have the initiation ceremony. Yeah. So anybody who was uh, will need to cut a check for $500. I can just take that out of my cash. Right. Yeah. Okay. Or even your assets in this case. There's enough time to sell things off. And so, yeah, you guys would write those checks and uh, Meriwether signals to one of the serving men who comes over with a silver platter for you to set them on. And then he departs somewhere. And he says, yes, as I understand it, the ceremony will be tonight at 7 p.m. For those that are joining this fine order, I will see you all then. Okay. As I took that out of my assets. Okay. Now, the police officer said that he would pay for one year of the dues. Right. Is that just for us taking the case or is it upon completion? I think it's just for, yeah, it's just for taking. In that case, I see no reason not to take him up on the offer. Yeah. Because I would very rather least have it's... a favor from him, uh, Travis. Oh, you'd rather? Is, yeah, if if that's a, an option, if it's not yeah, like absolutely. an all or nothing, okay. It's always good for a criminal to have a police officer owe them something. Exactly. <laughs> uh, all right, so um, with your checks deposited, however they are, either from uh, the detective or from you guys writing them th- th- yourselves, uh, Mr. Merriweather departs to his own duties for the rest of the day, and you guys are shown out of the premises, and we will close the scene as you walk into the Cambridge neighborhood thinking about a murder that you hope to solve. Uh, thanks for playing, guys. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Thank Travis. you Travis. It was good. Yeah. Looking forward to next week. There's a, 
a lot already added to the journal and uh, is some definite uh, investigation avenues there. This has been a Death Watch production. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.